0: Now, on the program today, a range of exhibitions and artists to talk about, and including, a, I know, this obscure Spanish artist you've never heard of, I'm sure, called Pablo Picasso. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Miranda Wallace, who's a senior curator with the National Gallery of Victoria. And Miranda joins us to talk about the new exhibition. Uh, it's this year's Melbourne Winter Masterpieces exhibition, The Picasso Century. Miranda, Would it be fair to say that Picasso is one of those names that even non-arts people tend to know?
1: I think think he's probably... I think we would sort of, you know, when you do the kind of shakedown, who is the household name artist? I think Picasso comes out top. I can't... I mean, Salvador Dali maybe. I think we could have done the Dali century. (laughs) And he would have probably liked that, you know, in in wherever he is now, thinking about the 20th century as his century. But I think Picasso probably still, um, you know... Pips him to the post.
0: Why do we have these kind of blockbuster exhibitions that focus on such well-known artists? Given that there are so many other artists who, the scales perhaps should be rebalanced and and refocused attention elsewhere.
1: It's a really good question, Richard. I think you know what we do as a as an institution. You know, we have to kind of we think of our program holistically, and we do try to you know bring into the discussion and to awareness artists who haven't been as exposed before but um you know there's also I guess in some ways Picasso is is sort of the the um the figure that allows us to bring into this exhibition in particular a whole host of other artists who are much less familiar to our audiences they might come for Picasso but hopefully while they're there they'll learn about the over 50 other artists whose work is in the exhibition which is for me like a really satisfying part of this show because I mean I think Picasso is he is a kind of colossus in in the way 20th century art is written about and certainly when I was an artist history student many moons ago he he loomed so large and he in fact so large that i kind of I got so sick of him, really, but um, I never really experienced his paintings. I was, you know, living in Brisbane. I didn't see that many Picasso works. And I remember the very first time I saw an exhibition that really did look at his work, I was really stunned by the power of his painting. I mean, it was extraordinary. And it helped me to understand a little bit why he is so celebrated. Um, And I think that it's important for us to bring that experience to audiences here in Australia. Um, But I, I think... The benefit of of the way we've approached this show and the curator in Paris, Didier Otanger has has conceived of the show is really to put, place him in this context with all of these other artists to show that he wasn't an isolated figure, just like you know, painting these works. His genius wasn't just in a in a vacuum, you know.
0: Which is something that immediately enthralls me and intrigues me about the exhibition. Be- to to actively dismantle the myth of the lone genius because we know that whatever art form, no-one works in isolation. People are influenced by the artists or the writers who have come before them and then their influence echoes across uh, immediately uh, their peers and then down through generations as well. So to dismantle that myth of the, the lone genius is... I think, a significant aspect of this exhibition. Before we talk about the Picasso century in a little more detail, why is Picasso such a significant figure in the the world of the visual arts?
1: Well, I think he he was very kind of good at being present at some of the uh, great pivotal sort of shifts of the 20th century in terms of modern art. I mean, he was part of that group of artists at the beginning of the 20th century that, um, you know, he certainly wasn't alone, but he was part of a group that wanted, again, like, as, as generations before them, to break from tradition. And the way they did it through um, their engagement or their dis- their sort of rejection of the Western classical tradition, their approach to cult- other cultures and, you know, the, the kind of connection to African art, oceanic art, is one that's been discussed a great deal. But in the exhibition we also explore... The way arts of, um, you know, ancient sort of art of Spain, for example, was very important to Picasso. He was looking for an ancestral tradition that would provide him with an alternative resource. And This kind of thing enabled them to sort of completely transform the way art looked, you know, like to create cubism, uh, was a, a very dramatic shift in the way art um, was you know, understood this sort of increasing move towards abstraction and, of course, it was done being done by other artists, you know, Malevich and, you know, it was being done elsewhere um, in different ways but it was part of this general move to kind of shake up the idea of what art would represent, what it's about, becoming much more, I guess, philosophical, conceptual in some ways. Um, And Picasso was there at the beginning, but he also, I think, unlike a lot of other artists, he managed to transform himself almost every decade. His work changes so dramatically, stylistically, and that kind of renewal and invention over a seven-decade-plus career is really quite extraordinary, I think there's also, you know, pragmatically speaking, there is the element of celebrity that became attached to Picasso. He was probably the very first artist to become an international kind of name uh, in the 1950s. Um, Interestingly, he only ever appeared on television once um, and that was quite a charming interview in which you realised that he still spoke with an incredibly strong Spanish accent and he was talking to a TV reporter about um, how he had borrowed a television in order to watch Princess Margaret's wedding. <laughs> Which was quite a fascinating, um, and not what you expect to have coming out of the mouth of this genius in the fifties. But that was, you know, make, made him seem more human. But you know, he had photographers and journalists from Life Magazine knocking on his door on, a, you know, daily basis. His his name was everywhere in the fifties, and I think that, um, you know, in, in in practical terms, helped to cement his name as one of the greats of twentieth century art.
0: You mentioned uh, a moment ago that. Picasso was uh, looking for an ancestral tradition uh, Mm. in the history of Spanish art, for example. Does that mean he was consciously myth making at the same time?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think he was. I think he was kind of his relation to myth in itself is fascinating because he was he was apparently a deeply superstitious person. He felt, um, you know, he, he wasn't. He, he he was looking for art. His idea of art was that art would in itself have a kind of possession. It would take part of his soul. It would have a kind of force of its own. And this is one of the reasons why he was so drawn to the kind of um, the material culture of Africa or Oceania because these were objects that he saw in the museum in Paris were part of a kind of – they had a function and, a, and in their original context they had a power and a kind of transa- trans. Transactional relationship with another world, and for him, you know, I think he he it's sort of written about how much he felt that he was using painting as a kind of exorcism of his own personality, of getting his work out, and so he kind of treated objects as these uh, his paintings as objects with power, and that you know why was one of the reasons why surrealists I think felt that he was such a kindred spirit, even though he himself didn't say you know he didn't really want to be called a surrealist, he wanted to be a realist. But um, you know that was an that was another art movement like Cubism that he kind of, you know, dovetails with and becomes a very important figure within. So that's another example of where he's located at the right time in terms of the great movements of modern art.
0: If uh, Picasso was treating his paintings as objects with power, is it fair to say that he treated women as objects without power?
1: Well, I think he. I think. Yet he certainly used the women who the women in his life to generate his own power i think you know he he drew on that connection that he had with them whether it was one of you know deep passion and erotic kind of fascination marie thérèse walter for example being the inspiration for so many works um after their meeting in 1927 or a woman like his first wife olga Koklova, who you know quite i think quite tragically becomes this figure of um she, she becomes She comes to represent for him and to be almost like the conduit for his interest, which was also shared by many of the other surrealists at the time, particularly someone like Alberto giacometti this you know uh, figure that was in their in their consciousness of this event vengeful female, the castrating female in the Freudian kind of context that they were all really interested in, and it kind of helped them kind of uh you know this this discourse helped them shape some of their ideas many of which were highly misogynist of course and now we look at we look back at it and we can you know see that very clearly in his work and his paintings it, that were made when he was having this terrible uh acrimonious relationship with olga after their marriage had broken down but they were still married um you know they are they do manifest that violence and you can you know, you do wonder Um, you know the the sad thing with certain figures in Picasso's life is you know you don't know as much about the women there are some like Marie-Thérèse never wrote a tell-all kind of book neither did Olga whereas you know Françoise Gillot did write famously you know A Life with Picasso which Picasso was outraged by as you know he was also outraged when his first you know long-term partner Françoise Olivier wrote her wonderful book which is such a great document about their life in Montmartre at the beginning of the 20th century. But, you know, he always hated the fact that his personal life was reported on um, and I think probably partly because it seemed to diffuse his own sense of his, um, you know, innate genius that wasn't affected by anyone else around him. Of course, that's the fallacy of the idea of genius with Picasso. Perhaps
0: the emphasis on is fallacy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very good.
0: If we've... If you've just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Miranda Wallace, Senior Curator at the National Gallery of Victoria. We're talking about the new exhibition, The Picasso Century, focused on the work of uh, the artist Pablo Picasso, but... I guess re-changing the emphasis now and uh, we should acknowledge that Hannah Gadsby uh, the comedian has also raised the idea of changing emphasis she famously uses the phrase um, uh, artists painting women like vases to put their dick flowers in and she also talks about cubism and saying look it is a radical uh, movement in art that moves away from a single perspective and gives us multiple perspectives simultaneously but How many of those perspectives are those of women? Now, what I find really intriguing about this exhibition, well, a number of things. One is the fact that had it been curated solely by uh, people here in Australia, I think there would be a different emphasis and a different focus on it other than, uh, but it's been curated uh, from France, so that gives us a different perspective. And it's certainly something that Robert Nelson mentions in his Review in the Age, that um, uh, if the exhibition had been in the hands of Australian curators, curators and writers, more critical attention would have been given to themes of gender, for example. But what the exhibition does do, which I think will uh, intrigue many people, even those who are perhaps frustrated by some of the areas it doesn't emphasise, is that it does look at, as we said earlier, the fact that Picasso was not a lone genius, that right from the beginning of the exhibition it situates him in an artistic milieu, uh, it it makes the links and connections between influencers and colleagues and how that played out in his
1: work absolutely and i'm you know this is a really it's a really rich and important discussion to be having i think in terms of um you know, something like uh, cubism and, you know, the importance of it. It's an interesting part. The show actually shows, you know, cubism and the whole classic Picasso and Barak dialogue. And then when you see this um, expansion of cubism after 1911 and you see a lot of the what's called what this show describes as the salon cubists, the work that was being done there, including, and this is our chance to bring in artists like Suzanne Duchamp, who was the youngest sibling in the Duchamp family, who's there's quite a charming painting by her in which she is obviously thinking about perspectives, time, and space, and how do you depict them in canvas? And she paints a woman reading a book with a puppy dog, uh, in four, one dog replicated four times on the canvas, and it's this—it just, just shows that these were ideas that were in the culture; they were in the, you know, the ether at the time because it was part of this broader awareness of new theories, new ideas around space, time. Um, matter. It was, you know, the um, development of Einstein's theory of relativity was active at this point. You had new uh, sort of uh, scientific and mathematical theories about how the world was composed. And this whole rejection of of a kind of renaissance model of perspective was pretty fundamental to showing that we were living in a new age. So I think that that was not something that Picasso alone possessed. It was something that was very much part of a broader movement, um so it's important to be able to show that and i guess you know what we do at the gallery you know we always feel that i guess one exhibition is not going to address the question of you know picasso's misogyny in a way i think that's a debate that has to be had it's a discussion around an exhibition when you get the chance to see work by the artist in question to sort of be able to think about was it is is it worth it does it have does it have continue to have merit today for us who were the other artists around him? How did he interact with them? Um, is our debate multifaceted and, you know, do we take into account a lot of the different aspects of life at the time? I think that we an exhibition like this probably is incremental in shifting perceptions about Picasso and, and enabling our broader public to come in and see his work but also realise that he was, as you say, he was kind of drawing like a sponge, drawing on the work of a lot of people around him. What was interesting discussing this exhibition with Didier was, you know, in France there's very much a different debate going on, although it's increasingly influenced by, I think, this this discussion around, you know, um, redressing the misogyny or addressing the misogyny in Picasso's work. But, you know, this idea of um, the genius was not denied. It was just the nature of genius not being something in isolation. Um, So I guess being able to... Take that idea and and you know present it to our audiences so that they can begin to see this complex nature of of how art develops, how a, how a creative community works.
0: And that idea of a creative community, I understand, is established almost at the right at the the opening of the exhibition, uh, the work by uh, well, what's it called, uh, Apollinaire mm. and his friends, which shows a group of of artists and colleagues and writers, and Picasso is there, not slap bang in the middle, just. Slightly off to the centre centre right.
1: Yeah, but, that's right, Marie Laurenson. Yeah, yeah, so
0: literally from the beginning of the exhibition, saying this man was did not work alone.
1: Absolutely, and he wasn't always the you know the kingpin of the scene. You know, Apollinaire, the poet. I, I kind of find it fascinating that you know he was the hero for so many of these younger artists. He was a you know poetry was probably considered the most important art form, and and he was. Um, absolutely, the hero. He, you know, he dies in 1918, and I think the world takes a different, very different course because of that. You know, he, he's no longer that presence in in art, but in in poetry. Um, But he is – yeah, it's a fascinating thing to see. I mean, at that point, when Marie Laurencin paints that work, Picasso has already painted Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, which is, you know, um, a painting that was made in 1907 that now hangs in the Museum of Modern Art in New York and is often referred to as, you know, the painting that marks the break towards, I guess, abstraction and other kind of more radical art practices – slightly overplayed mostly but um, I think you know it's fascinating that he'd he'd already done that it it wasn't yet an international sensation he was still a figure among others and yeah it's a painting there's Gertrude Stein in there there's Fernand Olivier the artist model that was his partner at the time it's a great encapsulation of this idea of, of, of the creative scene.
0: The Picasso Century is currently showing at NGV International in St Kilda Road until the 9th of October. And there are, of course, a range of programs, talks and ancillary events, which I'll mention briefly in a moment. But I've not yet seen the exhibition, Miranda, so I am very much looking forward to to diving in. I know it's quite an expansive exhibition, uh, but I did want to touch on Picasso's politics and how that's reflected in the exhibition, even reflected through the exhibition design.
1: Yes, um, there's a very distinctive uh, room. You, you, you know, you can't really miss the reference to communism when you enter the, the red room. Um, <laughs> Didier was, you know, he doesn't want to be subtle. He he was quite dis- directive about that colour as what he wanted to have behind the paintings, and that that room, I guess, is really unusual. For I, I was less familiar with this period of Picasso's career in the late forties and fifties when he was engaged in, in the Communist Party in France in a very active way. And his paintings were constantly being assessed in terms of how uh, relevant they were for the political discussion. He was often accused of being too obscure, not direct enough. He wasn't sort of didn't take the socialist realist route that his colleague André Fougeron did. And there's a work by Fougeron, which is a really ugly painting. But it's there to demonstrate what the Communist Party wanted to see in art. They wanted to see this kind of didactic, explicit sort of way of expressing the struggle of the, in this case, the coal miners and their sacrifice um, uh, for the for the, you know, for people. And and I think this was Picasso's works draw on art historical references. They're kind of obscure, even though they might have a title like Massacre in Korea, which is a reference to the Korean War. Um, the painting itself looks vaguely medieval. You know, it's kind of – he he didn't want to be a sort of very sort of direct member of any club uh, or any group. He wanted to always have his own individual kind of difference and I think that was, you know, part of his ego but also part of his kind of – I think probably sort of nervousness or hesitation around party politics and the idolatry associated in that time with – With communism?
0: Lots to explore and lots to unpack in the Picasso century. Uh, This year's Melbourne Winter Masterpieces Exhibition, now showing at NGV International in St Kilda Road in Melbourne. Uh, On until the 9th of October, admission fees do apply and you can learn more at www.ngv.vic.gov.au. While you're on the website, you can also look into the range of programs and talks and events that are on, including NGV Friday nights with DJs and live performances. There's um, talks and conversations, including you <laughs> Um, uh, let's see, there's the 10 minutes with Picasso talks uh, that were held on the opening weekend and there will be other conversations to be held, including uh, I believe even a drop by poetry and drop by collage workshops (laughs) that are part of the program. So all of that is also available on the NGV website. So ngv.vic.gov.au the Picasso century showing until the 9th of October so you've got plenty of time to see it, but don't make the mistake of leaving it until the last minute when it will be insanely crowded because everybody who's gone oh shit we forgot it was on we better go this weekend will be there as well so go somewhere between now and about i know the 7th of october i've been talking with dr miranda wallace senior curator at the ngv miranda it's been a pleasure thanks for coming in
1: thanks richard triple ah
0: We've talked on the show so far about a major exhibition, time for us to turn our attention towards, I guess, the the independent sector in Melbourne, and a new work that automatically intrigued me as soon as I read a review of it uh, from uh, the New York Times a few years ago. I say it's a new work. I think it premiered in in the States in 2008, but I think this is its uh, Melbourne premiere. It's been described as a rock and roll autobiography of an artist in search of himself, but please don't call it a Broadway musical. You might scare away too many people who might actually enjoy it. Call it a rock concert with a story to tell, trimmed with a lot of great jokes, or call it a sprawling work of performance art, complete with angry rants and scary drag queens. Call it whatever you want, really. I'll just call it wonderful. That's uh, the critic Charles Isherwood from the New York Times in 2008. The work is called Passing Strange. It's being presented here in Melbourne by the Antipodes Theatre Company. And joining us in the studio to tell us more, it's director, Dean Dryberg, and the show's musical director, and conductor, who is also playing keyboards in the show because it's not like conducting and being musical director are complicated enough already. Uh, Marissa Soroka, welcome to you both. Hi. Thank you. <laughs> so, Dean, let's start with you. In terms of that, those quotes from the New York Times, do they do
2: Passing Strange justice as a show? They absolutely do. Now I just hope that we do those quotes justice. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I-, I totally agree. I mean, people often say, oh, it's a musical and I don't like to refer to it as a musical. I prefer it to think of it as gig theatre or a hybrid of a rock concert with storytelling. So think of... Uh, David Byrne's American Utopia or uh, Barbara and the Camp Dogs. That was the show I I was thinking of is the local parallel,
0: something Mm -hmm. that is theatre with songs in it and... That is recreating the energy of a pub gig, but in a theatre space.
2: Then that's definitely the atmosphere that we're trying to create uh, at the meat market with this show. So if you're not into musicals, this might be a good gateway musical for you. (laughs) So
3: when there's like, you know, something that's kind of a bit more like a play or a musical, we kind of like colloquially call it a playsical. but I think this is more like a play rock So that's kind of, Yeah.
0: The vibe. Marissa, for you as musical director, what kind of extra pressure does that put on you to try try and create the the energy of a rock gig in a theatre setting?
3: Well, I'm actually like a rock muso as well, and kind of came into theatre a bit later, so it's actually more suited to me. Um, to and I, I've been saying to the cast, you know, it's it's loose tightness, tight looseness, and that's kind of like how I how I play musically and how I live my life. So I feel like it's actually more suited to me than than when I've done the more kind of straight theatre things. So, yeah, I, I love it
0: now dean you're already working on another piece of musical <laughs> theatre here in melbourne coming yes. um, hamilton i think
2: it's called yes that's oh, right what? yeah may have really? heard of it
0: <laughs> so you're resident director on that how the hell do you find the time to then direct passing strange
2: well uh, i think both uh, shows have been very accommodating and i've just been spending all of my time outside of Hamilton working on Passing Strange and uh, we, yeah, we tend to work on my days and, and hours off from Hamilton are at Passing Strange but, you know, I I wanted to be a theatre director and that's <laughs> consuming my whole life so I'm I'm really living the dream right now.
3: We also have an amazing associate director so yes. um, between them they hold down the fort and um, uh, yeah, Cecily Stovall so like, yeah. That's it's a great right. Team. I've
2: got I've got a great support that when I'm not present in the room. So,
0: also, I'm yeah.
3: very bossy and uh <laughs> can happily boss them around.
0: <laughs> now, we've talked a little bit about the I guess the tone or the feel of Passing Strange, but tell us a little bit more about it as a show.
2: Yeah, so uh the story is about a young black man who, you know, is frustrated and is uninspired living in Southern California and he he decides to go on on a journey to Europe to to discover himself and be inspired by art as you know many people in my life and and myself as well have had those moments where you decide that oh my hometown is a bit boring and and stifling and and I want to see other places and experience things and so he does he does go on this journey and uh yeah it's quite a it's quite a fun story there's a lot of comedy it, it there's some sad moments it really has a bit of everything but i think the thing that people won't expect from a musical written by uh stew who's a rock musician is how incredible the lyrics and the text mm-hmm. are like i'm talking deep and and uh yeah just incredibly crafted songs and and mm-hmm. text
0: should we read anything into the fact that the title is a
2: uh, a quote from shakespeare <laughs> Absolutely, and I think the title has many meanings as well. Uh, It's definitely a throwback to um, the Shakespearean quote, but also the idea of uh, you know African American people use the term "passing" when they have to uh, code switch or try and fit into other environments and spaces, and that's something that our lead character experiences uh it's also the idea that he is passing through many places and passes through many people like there's there's many many layers to that title <laughs> And
0: in terms of the, the musical style, Marissa, tell us a little bit more about what people can expect to hear when they get along. We've talked about that kind of the energy of a pub gig, for yeah. example, but how significant are the songs in terms of advancing the plot, in terms of generating um, emotion and what style of music can people yeah. expect?
3: Well, I uh, as soon, the first time I spoke with Dean about this, I kind of left – you know, our hang and, and played it straight away. And I think I played about two bars of the first song on the soundtrack and was like, yep, cool. I want, I want to do this, please let me. And so, um, it definitely starts rocking. Um, but like, Dean mentioned, you know, the depth of the lyrics um also translates to like the musical styles as well. So you've got some um you've got beautiful ballads um and harmonies um the comedic bits there's some gospel um as well. Um there's a very political um vaudeville type number uh that that plays on uh, minstrel, you know, um, yeah, kind of uh, yeah. minstrel tropes. Absolutely, and, you know. which, which, you know, he uses, um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think, yeah, you can imagine, just come and watch. Um, and, yeah, so it's just there's so much. It never seems contrived or out of place, um, but it just really um, gives you a bit of an idea of, like, what it is if a musician writes a piece like this with, with so many different um, inspirations and experience kind of like um, – you know, in that kind of world.
2: Yeah, there's also like there's there is as the, that review quote said. There's performance art. Mm-hmm. There's there's like a punk song. There's
3: oh, yeah, I know. So many different styles. Industrial EDM. Yeah. You know, we're in Berlin for a bit. Spoiler alert. And so like you know, um, yeah. Oh, it's it's, del- oh, it's delicious. I've been saying <laughs> everyone. <laughs> and
0: in terms of the plot, if we're talking about somebody who is leaving their their town, going off what to to explore the world, but also presumably to find themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a bit of a – that trope can become tired fairly easily and become perhaps – the the narrator of such a story could become self-indulgent in, in uh, fairly easily as well. How, how does the, the show work around that potential risk?
2: I think it's quite a unique journey that we haven't seen in many other shows, even though it sounds very universal. You know, young person, leaves small town, goes to visit Europe, is inspired to become an artist – uh, it's quite a unique story and, and told through a lens that we don't often see, especially in Australian theatre, that is through a young black man, through his eyes and his journey and what it means to be a young black man in, uh, you know, in Europe and uh, him finding his identity and exploring his art and, and yeah, even the styles of art that he experiences go from performance art to rock to soul. Uh, so I think it is, it is still quite a unique story.
0: How did you first discover it? Because you didn't know much about Stu as an artist when you were introduced to the show.
2: That's right. I read an article about the Broadway production just after it had closed. It did a limited engagement on Broadway. And I was reading about this show and thinking, oh, this sounds really unique. As a person who's a music theatre super fan. I was going to
3: say nerd, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, that
2: one too. Um, I I just thought, oh, this sounds like a really unique piece of theatre. And I'm always looking out for... Music theater that really breaks the form and 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 challenges what music theater could be. Uh, so I, I was really interested in it. And then not long after that, they released a filmed version of the final performance on Broadway, and I watched that and thought it was just so groundbreaking and unlike anything else I've seen that before was filmed, or since.
3: Filmed by Spike Lee as well, so yeah. that kind of also tells you the gravitas of. Yeah, absolutely.
2: But don't go and watch that on YouTube. Come and see our show live. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you can come and see Passing Strange live at the meat market from the 24th of June until the 10th of July, and I'll give some more details shortly. <laughs> Marissa, I mentioned at the start that, yes, you're a musical director and playing keyboards and conducting and just the idea of trying to play keyboards and conduct everybody else at the same time (laughs) is doing my head in.
3: I mean, I was also playing Stomp in rehearsal because we don't have a drummer, but that's okay. We don't have to talk about how great I am. (laughs) (laughs) But
0: I did want to talk about your background as an artist because Mm -hmm. you've recorded two albums. Uh, Yeah. I just
3: released a new single, actually. I should have had you play that instead of... (laughs) Honestly, uh, it's been in the last couple of weeks, so I totally forgot. Thanks for reminding me. (laughs)
0: Uh you should quickly plug your website or where people yeah. can listen to it.
3: Oh my goodness. Um I don't even know. Um well, you'll be talking about my name, Marissa Soroka. I'm on all the socials, but yes, we're not here for me. I'll come in another time, okay? <laughs> okay. We'll we'll organize. But
0: as well as doing all those other things that you do, recording albums, putting out a new single, uh being the musical director of the show, you've acted and perform- and sung in kind of musical theater as well. Mm-hmm. What's the appeal of m- musical theatre, even if we're not allowed to call it musical theatre, as in the case of this show. For you as an artist and as a performer, what is the the potency or the power or the attraction of musical theatre as a genre?
3: Yeah, um, that's such a good question because I definitely came to it even just as, you know, a person loving to sing uh, soul R&B, pop um, kind of music. I think because um, it does have a story and there are usually – uh, with musicals, you know, the reason that people sing in them is because um, the emotion is heightened, uh, elevated than, than just speaking. Otherwise, they would just talk. So um, I think there's something about that that interests me as a singer. And um, obviously, if, if the music is beautiful, <laughs> then that's the extra, the extra icing on the cake.
0: And, Dean, for you as a, as a self-described uh, musical theatre superfan, again, mm. what's the attraction for you? Is, for Because it's a genre that a lot of people have a very fraught relationship with. I've got plenty of friends who love theatre but say, oh, I can't stand musicals. And there's, there's so many preconceptions and stereotypes about what musicals are and can be. And you take those people to something like Come From Away mm. and say this is what the form can do and it's the, the scales fall away from their eyes or perhaps in their ears a little bit. But for you, talk to us about what's the – again, why is this your
2: favourite art form? Uh yeah, I think people rightly so uh, kind of roll their eyes at music <laughs> theatre, and I do that too sometimes. Uh, but I think what, what interests me is is just the combination of music and storytelling and dance and design. It's all of those elements ca- that come together. And I think sometimes musicals do things that, that plays don't quite reach in terms of what Marissa was saying of heightening emotional moments and... And I'm just such a big music fan as well. Like I listen to music constantly, so I think adding music to theatre gives you just another level of uh, another layer of emotion, and and uh, yeah. And I think I'm always interested in in shows like Passing Strange, like Hamilton, that that do something different with the form and aren't as formulaic. And or you know, I love Sondheim because it's just so dance and and uh, humanist. So. I'm always interested in those kind of musicals rather than a carousel or My Fair Lady.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think these days too, uh, you know, being that more contemporary uh, musicals are happening, especially in the indie scene, uh, people can find things that aren't, you know, the golden age stuff that maybe their great-grandparents were into, you know, Um, and I think it's more accessible and, and closer to what they might listen to in real life.
0: We should also acknowledge uh the team that you are staging this production with, so yes, presented by Antipodes theater Company, but talk to us about the the cast and talk to us about the band
3: you
2: yeah, friends. yeah, our
3: oh, cast I love them
2: yeah it's such a it's a really interesting group of people in the cast, uh some of whom have never done a musical before, but obviously can act and sing and Dance and embody these characters, so it's really exciting working with people like that rather than the people that you tend to see in every musical that is staged in australia and I was really excited to to work with some new people that i hadn't worked with before uh, and just really allow them to to suit the style of the show as well so I wouldn't necessarily cast someone that I would cast in other musicals in this show. Uh, so it's a really, it's an incredible cast, uh, a full 100% cast who are black identifying, which is incredible. Um, there are people who, they're not all from Melbourne. So some someone's from Newcastle, we've got someone from Mackay, someone from Brisbane. So they are an Australian cast. And yeah, it's just really exciting to work with them. Our creative team, I've got uh, Cicely Stovall, who's my associate director. We have Loretta Malcolm, who uh, I work on Hamilton with, who's our choreographer, and uh, Bianca Pardo, who also I work on Hamilton with, who's our (laughs) set and costume designer, and uh, Evan Drill, our sound designer, and Sam Wiley, our lighting designer. So just a really incredible team of people. Have I missed anyone? You're
3: going to get in trouble. I'm not going to help you out at all. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, also um, Reese Velasquez from Evolution Casting has done a great job in... um, looking for people who specifically maybe not have had the kind of access that you do in um, theatres notoriously difficult to break into, um, especially as we've – has been brought to our attention over the last few years, which uh, a lot of people that we know and certainly all of us on the creative team are actively part of of breaking those walls down. So it's been really exciting to – allow people who – or to invite people who haven't necessarily had the thousands and thousands of dollars worth of training that you usually have to or with, or without agents or that kind of access that you usually have to have. And as someone who experienced that myself, um, it's just been really exciting and important to, like, be part of a team that, that wants that for the future of the theatre here.
2: Yeah, keep opening those doors. <laughs> well, it
0: absolutely, uh, I guess, underlines the fact that not only is this – an intriguing production in its own right and on its own merits, but also what it represents in terms of uh, dismantling the the, the Anglo-Saxon kind of Anglo-Australian dominance of theatre and particularly musical theatre as a genre in mm-hmm. this country. It's really significant as a production in that regard as well.
2: And I think you know something must be said that we do tend to see a lot of you know diverse bodies on stage, and, I, and what I love about this show is that that continues off stage as well with our with our product with our um, creative team, and so we're also hoping to do that with the audiences that come into this space and experience the show. Uh, we're hoping that it is more accessible for for audiences in many ways, uh, and that
0: access uh, includes an audio described performance and tactile tour on Saturday, the second of July at three pm, an Auslan interpreted performance of the show on Friday, the first of July. I love
3: those. PS, at- <laughs> they're, they're so great. Oh, and watching <laughs> so Auslan good.
0: interpreters kind of like work their magic. Oh, oh yeah, kinda, it is so expressive. Uh, yep. So yeah, for me as a as uh, somebody who I, I can't. Uh, read Auslan mm. or kind of, but I I do love watching it. Mm, so, it's beautiful. And it's so yep. kind of important that audiences are getting the chance mm-hmm. to see works that would otherwise
2: lock them out. Be inaccessible, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's also a Blackout performance. Now tell us about this. Yeah, so uh, Blackout Night started with uh, Jeremy O'Harris's Slave Play on Broadway, which obviously featured very heavy themes for uh Black audiences. so they decided to have a night to, just for black audiences to experience the show where they could feel safe in the space to react how they needed to react and feel like they didn't need to code switch or alter their behavior and they could have meaningful discussions outside of the white gaze and it's something that Antipodes theater pioneering. I certainly haven't heard of it happening in Melbourne before. Uh, just to allow access to black and brown audiences to experience this show and feel like they're in a safe space and feel like they really are invited to the theatre. I know a lot of times people of colour don't feel uh, included in, and there's many barriers to to going to experience theatre, so yeah, hopefully this helps develop audiences and and bring more people into the building. Or
3: you might even just be the only person of colour in a space. I, you know, literally did an aerobics class not too long ago and was like, oh, okay, it's me. Cool, great, you know, (laughs) so things like that. So something like this is, uh, you know, it's really special. It feels, yeah, it feels safe and, yeah, important. Hmm.
0: The Blackout Performance of Passing Strange is happening on Saturday, the 2nd of July at 7.30pm. For details uh, about the season and about the access requirements that have been provided for, uh, as we said, audio description, Auslan, tactile tour and the blackout performance, uh, and about the show in general, jump on to www.antipodestheatre.com, antipodestheatre.com, company are presenting the australian premiere of passing strange from the 24th of june until the 10th of july at the meat market stables to reckon street north melbourne so not the main meat market itself in blackwood street but the block behind it in the stables and uh i've been chatting with the show's director dean dryberg and its musical director conductor and keyboard player (laughs) marissa soroka
4: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: It's time for us to talk contemporary dance, and I'm joined in the studio by Josh Wright, who is the CEO and Artistic Director of Dance House, Melbourne's Centre for Contemporary Choreographic Practice. Josh, welcome to Triple R.
4: Thanks, Richard. Great to be here.
0: Lovely to have you in. Now, we're not here to talk about Dance House specifically, but about a really intriguing project that has been running at Dance House for several years uh, in conjunction with Carriage Works up in Sydney and with a few other partners involved as well the Kia Choreographic Award. Now, one of the reasons that this kind of uh, project and this award fascinates me is because it was conceived as a very deliberate way of getting people to pay attention to contemporary dance mm. by presenting an award. Because mm. people outside the dance world, in the same way that the mainstream media often only pay attention to the visual arts mm. when the Archibald Prize is on, having a prize makes people sit up and go, Oh, we, we understand the context for this, mm. that it's a competition, we, we, we get that, even if we don't get the art form itself. Does that cheapen the award in any way by kind of having that artificial structure around it?
4: It's quite unusual, isn't it? I mean, in a in a sense, um, in the dance world, we have competitions all the time. It's it's and it's very popular form in the visual arts. You think of the Archibald. I was thinking on the way here also. The Venice Biennale is a competition. You know, actually, there there are so many examples um, in contemporary dance. There there are there are less kind of. Um, There are less examples and really Philip Keir, who is um, the patron of the award and his name is obviously in the the title, um, really wanted to do a couple of things by setting up this initiative with Angela Conkay, who is the previous Artistic Director of Dance House. And really it was about introducing this idea of a competition but also of a commission. So essentially what what the award does initially is asks for um, choreographic ideas, brand new choreographic ideas from across Australia, and artists um, submit their ideas. They can't really have worked on it or shown any kind of public outcome of that. And what they're doing is pitching something that they want to test out. And it's a short work. It's 16 to 20 minutes. And, uh, and that they then, if selected, get this fabulous commission, which is also pretty rare in the dance world, a fully paid opportunity, um, studio access time, accessibility costs... And a budget to work with their collaborators to explore this idea. And really, um, it is a competition frame, but it's also a presentation opportunity. We get to see eight works from eight artists from across Australia. And in this um, this year's award, we've got people from New South Wales, Tasmania, Victoria, Western Australia. And... As you say, and you correctly point out, it's also an opportunity for the dance world to go, hey, we do this all the time. Here are some fabulous artists. Let's draw some um, some attention and some eyes for the media, but also for international and national presenters and curators and other interested artists. We get really um, terrific engagement internationally and interest in the in the Key Choreographic Award because it's a way to see what artists are up to without seeing a fully realized. 60 or 40-minute production.
0: In terms of the artists who are submitting ideas, and in particular the artists who have then been shortlisted to present these, literally to embody these ideas in progress, essentially at what stage are most of them at in their careers are we talking kind of quite young or emerging artists fresh out of dance training for example or people who've been working in the independent dance sector for 5 to 10 years where are they at in their trajectory
4: it's a great question in fact in this year's kira award it's a real range so we've got um we've got an artist for example in their 70s and who has been working um for a very long time in Sydney in, in more kind of performance and, and mixed media and performance installation. And then we have some artists who are probably better known as dancers and other people's works who are getting a choreographic opportunity. And then we have some well-known names like Aliceville Will Caroline um, and Beck Jensen who are kind of at that mid-career point where they've had a couple of works under their belts and and they'll be a bit more familiar with audiences and communities.
0: And given they're at that stage of their career, they... Uh, somebody like Beckwood, then clearly anybody is going to benefit from being commissioned to make a full-length work if they win the award. But I, I would imagine particularly for an artist who is a little bit further advanced, because uh, as you said earlier, commissions are pretty rare.
4: Mm-hmm. They certainly are. And what is interesting that we see coming out of the legacy of the awards, see so the awards has been happening since 2014 and this is the fifth edition, um, is that there there is a, there is a singular cash prize that's awarded by an international jury and there's also an audience prize but also the works do tend to get commissioned off or or the works go on to have other lives. Sometimes artists get invited or they get seen by um, particular curators or audiences and there's kind of an interest and a demand in something they're pursuing. So sometimes the works get turned into full-scale things but sometimes they stay as they are, as 16, 20-minute works and they still tour around and and visit um, audiences around the world.
0: And there's something very satisfying about a compact work of that Mm -hmm. nature as well. It's like um, a good short story or a good song. You can pack a lot of content and ideas and passion into something that doesn't have to be an hour, an hour and a half long.
4: Absolutely, and it's probably what I love most about the KiA Choreographic Award is that essentially um, you're seeing eight artists' works. This year we've spread it out over two weeks, so you're seeing four works at a time, and you get this delicious kind of um, smorgasbord of four works um, that you can see over a night with an interval in the middle. And you might recognise one name or two names or none of the names whatsoever. And what you're guaranteed to see is four very different ideas from four very different um, dancers and choreographers. Um, Um, And it's a real way for you to develop um, an interest in contemporary dance. And there's definitely something that will be appealing to you.
0: So week one uh, is the 23rd to the 25th of June. Week two, the 30th of June until the 2nd of July. And if you go to dancehouse.com.au, you can book a pass that will let you see all eight shows, or you can book a half pass that will allow you to see four of the eight shows. Uh, I, having attended uh, the Kia Choreographic Award performances in the past, I recommend diving in and seeing all eight works because it's such a range of works. And some of them have literally left me speechless in a good way and others I've just gone, what the? But to see artists pushing the, the, the boundary of what contemporary dance can be Yep. is such a fascinating and rewarding experience.
4: Yeah and it's what's so interesting about this award as I say these are brand new ideas, they're made in a in a kind of tight timeline with a, with a kind of competition budget and people just have to pursue a singular idea and to some degree what they pitch initially, you know their work is going to evolve into something else. So we've got people exploring kind of theatrical magic, we've got people looking at performing on um, on high heels, we've got people exploring endings we've got people working with folly music there's a whole lot of there's quite a lot of risk and quite a lot of diversity in um, how the artists are exploring different choreographic ideas.
0: Josh in terms of the audience who attend the Kia Choreographic Mm. Award performances how many of them do you think uh, do you perhaps even have data about them are new to contemporary dances and art form is this is does this serve as a as an introduction to to the art form itself?
4: It's a great question. Um, I think it does. I mean, the privilege of working at Dance House is that we work across all kinds of dance. Um, We do work in the quote-unquote contemporary dance field, um, but we also work in street dance. We work with Vogue community. We work with um, improvisers. There's There's a kind of full spectrum. And what I've learned at Dance House is that each kind of aspect of dance has a different community and has different audiences coming. I think what we see in the Kier Award are probably people who are interested in... um developing a kind of palette and seeing a a, a variety of different um ideas in contemporary dance these are exciting shows but they are driven by singular ideas which should be very very clear and easy to follow and i think sometimes you know that there's the old adage of i don't know what i'm seeing in contemporary dance i don't understand contemporary dance the key choreographic award is so clear because the artist will say i'm exploring this idea how did i go after 20 minutes
0: it's and something that i guess part of my journey as a critic and cultural commentator. I remember being not frightened of contemporary dance, but confused by it. I could not read it the way I could read theatre or music. Mm. And uh, once I let go of that fear and went, right, I'm just going to have to see a, a, a variety of contemporary dance forms. Uh, and now it's one of my favourite art forms. So I At- definitely recommend diving in.
4: Absolutely. And in Australia, we're so lucky. We have such an incredibly diverse and talented group of dancers with very long history. And as I say, you know, the kinds of themes that the artists are exploring in the Key Choreographic Award are very, um, they're very accessible. They're about rituals. They're about the exotification of, of, of black bodies. They're about violence. They're about um, balance. You know, they're, they're, they're about endings. They're very tangible ideas. They're not um, wafty, abstract um, ambience.
0: Now, as well as the actual performances uh, being presented uh, for the those artists being shortlisted for the Kia Choreographic Award, there's also a range of conversations and masterclasses as well. Talk to us about that side of the program. I guess which is what a, a con- contextual framing, if you will.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um As I mentioned before, what's wonderful about the KIR is that we also um, invite um, some international people to come and watch the award and also to be our jury. So that jury will um, choose who they think is what is the best work and give a cash prize. This year, we've got um, some fabulous international jury members, including um, two that I want to highlight who are offering workshops. Um, So we've got Lemmy Ponifazio, who is a well-known theatre maker from New Zealand, Samoa, Aotearoa. And Lemmy has made um, large-scale kind of theatrical works across the world. Um, He works a lot um, with Pacific and Oceanic communities, looking at climate change um, Um, and using dance and choreography as part of that. He's going to be doing a workshop um, for artists talking about their practice and why using dance and theatrical um, work is of interest. And we also have Eko Suprianto, who's an Indonesian-based uh, choreographer and again has worked in Berlin and Europe and um, Taiwan and Japan, and he's going to be doing a masterclass as well. And we also have a range of other conversations by our other jury members looking at things like um, dramaturgy, artistic leadership, um, and generations of dances between New York and, and Australia.
0: One of the other things that intrigues me about the Kia Choreographic Award is that it is a collaboration between arts organisations in different cities and different states. Often the the sector is a little bit, not insular, but it works don't necessarily collaborate with uh, uh, artists and, and audiences interstate. Something is made in Melbourne, and perhaps it will tour, perhaps it won't. But the idea of having two presenting partners work on something like this to strengthen conversation across state borders feels really significant.
4: Absolutely and it's one of the great things that we're able to do this year in the Keir Choreographics Award is that for the first time we're all artists are going both to Sydney and to Melbourne. So the way that it works and why we're doing a two week program is that the programme that premieres in Melbourne next week, then tours to Sydney the week after we essentially swap. So it's automatically a tour for artists and it's automatically an ongoing conversation between both Sydney and Melbourne audiences who are guaranteed to see the same works in albeit really different spaces. So Carriage Works is in Bay 20. It's 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 an old kind of train repair yard, and of course if you've been to Dance House, it's a it's a little community hall. So that's also a choreographic challenge, how do artists adapt their works choreographically to a much smaller intimate space and then to a much larger, you know, train carriage workshop.
0: It's great that audiences in both cities will get the chance to see all of the works now as well, as opposed to previous iterations where eight works would premiere in Melbourne and by the time they got to Sydney, they were whittled down to four.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's been something that, that um, I've been talking with Philip and our partners about, and we're really excited to be able to do that in Sydney. Sydney too um, is, we sometimes feel a bit sorry for Sydney. They don't have the amazing number of art smaller to medium arts organisations we have in Melbourne, like Lucy Guerin and Chunky Move and Temperance Hall and Stephanie Lake Company. And so it's good to be able to give those audiences um, something that they can see outside of festival time.
0: I'll give all the the, the information about the Kia Choreographic Award in just a moment. But while I've got you in the studio, Josh, I did want to ask about the future of what was once called Dance Massive, because I know that uh, Dance House and Arts House uh, have been working with a range of artists uh, who have been providing input and advice and guidance as to what kind of future shape a dance festival in Melbourne should have. Can you shed any light on how that's progressing?
4: I can shed a little bit of light. This is kind of fresh off, <laughs> off the press. Um, we had a much-loved um, and, and very um, impactful festival called Dance Massive. Um, and the last edition of that was in 2019, before um, it wasn't able to be pursued anymore for a variety of funding reasons, but also because of the pandemic and the way that the sector has changed and also been really heavily impacted um, by by COVID. Um, what we do have, though, is... a a lot of hope and a lot of excitement in the sense that we're starting a new festival which will happen in March of next year. It will go for a month um, and we have an increased number of partners so currently there are 11 partners who have signed up I think it's eleven. Eleven partners who have signed up who will be presenting some form of dance project in March next year. We'll have a. We don't even know what the new festival is called, um, but what we do have is a lot of work that we've done during the pandemic as a sector, as organisations, as independent artists, as producers and stakeholders, and we've worked really hard to begin the foundation of a festival that we need. Um, we need to have into the sector, and that is really, really artist-led and artist-focused. So we have some foundate um, some founding principles that organisations have signed up to, and we also have a curatorium of independent artists who are actually driving um, and selecting and, and kind of um, inviting works and conversations into this new festival. So the name is coming. We'll be able to get back to you on that, um, and there'll be an announcement probably um, towards the end of this year, but put, you know, mark out the whole of March of next year in your diary for a dance explosion across Melbourne and even into regional Victoria.
0: We can have a mad march of our own, Looking forward to finding out more, but right now the dates for your diary are for the Kia Choreographic Award 2022 at Dance House, 150 Princes Street, North Carlton. So week one, the 23rd to the 25th of June. Week two, the thirtieth of June to the second of July, uh, a full pass uh, for the whole season seventy bucks sixty five concession um, uh, and if you 're a dance house member fifty eight uh, and then a half pass forty bucks thirty five or thirty two um, i recommend if if you are intrigued by contemporary dances and art form. Go the the full hog. Buy um, a Kia Choreographic Award pass for the for all of the works, and you will see works that are riveting and provocative and challenging, and so fresh and new. It, it's a really exciting kind of couple of weeks of contemporary dance here in Melbourne. Josh Wright, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, chukas to you and the team for presenting what I'm sure will be a pretty full on few weeks.
4: Thank you. We're super excited to do it. Thanks for having me.